Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting with verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Holy word. Holy wisdom. Thanks be to God. Who do you say that I am? Have you ever asked someone what they thought of you? A parent, a close friend? Have you searched for that answer in a teacher's evaluation or annual review? Have you read between the lines in a Valentine's Day card or maybe a thank you note? Have you wondered what your eulogy might one day say? What responses did you get? Were they surprising in what they revealed or in what they missed? Who do you say that I am? It's not the same thing as asking, who am I? The first question is one you can only ask of others. The second is an exploration only you can take on as you ask the question of identity and act on the call to integrity. Jesus seems to know the answer to who am I? Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus refers to himself with a term translated as Son of Man. But more recently, it has been imagined as the human one. This is Jesus' unique moniker for himself. Most of what people call him publicly are the terms that the disciples venture in verse 28 of today's passage. Prophet, Messiah, titles of power and privilege. But Jesus chooses one that denotes vulnerability and suffering. And through these humble connotations, Jesus shows unity to all of us who call ourselves children of the human race. 
When Peter takes issue with Jesus' explanation of what it means to be quintessentially human, Jesus tells him to step back in line. Actually, he's not that polite. Jesus has just taught the disciples how the human one's triumph is through rejection and suffering, and yet he rebukes Peter for too narrow an interpretation of divinity. The human thing that Jesus' mind is set on is unadulterated power. The divine thing that Jesus wants Peter to find by following him is unifying love. I don't know if Mark is imbuing Jesus with the gift of hindsight when Jesus seems to be predicting his death and resurrection in this passage. It certainly makes the story interesting at this point, laying down an ominous soundtrack under his journey to Jerusalem. The author of Mark also gives Jesus back an omniscient that Jesus himself seems to reject. Jesus rebuffs the disciples. You say I'm a prophet, Messiah, but keep that to yourselves. What Jesus wants to show the world is what he tells his disciples amongst a now-gathering crowd. This is not a proclamation of his identity, but an invitation to his path of integrity. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is one who is not afraid to suffer for love. Baptist scholar Ched Myers writes that take up your cross was a common call to action amongst dissidents and activists at the time. Crucifixions were public occurrences for those who challenged the empire, and Jesus was not going to back down for fear of death. In fact, he was traveling directly into the seat of local power to Jerusalem. Jesus makes this claim quite openly, as it says in verse 32. In Greek, the adverb is parisia, meaning with courage, boldly, frankly. Take up your cross is Jesus' invitation to live with integrity. It is an invitation we cannot fully entertain until we have entertained the reality of our own death and the impact of our life on this earth. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples. But we are to wonder the same thing about our own witness. Who would they say that we are? It is through our relationship with Jesus that we are invited into the dance of identity and integrity that encompasses an entire life. There is a give and take, kind of choreography, sometimes graceful, sometimes awkward and stumbling, that each of us goes through as we attempt self-reflection, asking, who am I? And as we act out of our convictions, or as we look for signs from others, who would they say we are? And we re react to their feedback. In a letter to a young man entering Morehouse College, the late mystic and pastor of the Multicultural and Multi-Faith Fellowship Church of All Nations, the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman, responded to the young man's question. How does one go about placing his life in step with the life of the God that is in him? Thurman writes, My reaction to your letter is in the form of three questions, the answers to which only you can give. Who are you? And by that I mean, do you have an authentic sense of self-worth? What do you feel is your essence outside of others? 
Two, what do you want, really? If you were able to have a true sense of fulfillment, what must happen in you or for you? Three, how do you propose to get what you want? This opens up the whole question of commitment, goals, definitive ambition, the whole works. To what extent are you willing to compromise yourself or to use other people as a means to your end? Then Thurman goes on to say, You will note I said nothing about God as such. To me, the only God you will ever find is the God who will become real to you as you seek answers. Ultimately, this foundation of what Thurman calls the religion of Jesus, as opposed to the religion about Jesus, Jesus was sure of who he was, according to Thurman. He was the child of God. Jesus knew what he really wanted, to be an agent of God's love. And Jesus knew how his commitment to this would define his goals and ambition in life. Most importantly, Jesus knew whether or not he was willing to compromise himself or to use other people as a means to his ends. It is the boundary Jesus drew in answering this last question that led to his death. By the end of the passage, Jesus has invited all of his listeners to boldly face the possibility of our own death and to follow him to embrace a path of greater truth and love than the fool's gold of the Pax Romana. Now, he knows that some of us will need to be reassured of God's power before we embrace the power of our own witness. But he encourages us to taste the freedom of our life and death and our promised resurrection earlier than the final reckoning, if we can. As we journey with Jesus this Lent, I am reminded that the 40 days of Lent were the original inspiration for the term quarantine. It comes from the Italian word quarenta, when maritime merchants were asked to remain on an island outside Venice for 40 days so as not to spread the bubonic plague during one of its three surges in the Middle Ages. I'm also struck this week by our nation hitting the 500,000 mark of lives lost by COVID-19. Last Saturday, a church near my house in Decatur placed thousands of white flags on their lawn as a temporary memorial. I walked past them on one of the brilliant sunny days that we had this week. As I saw them fluttering in the wind like wildflowers in a valley, I wondered how our society and our churches will be changed by this pandemic and our time apart from each other. I remembered that by the late medieval ages, communities had embraced the dance macabre, a ritual of public dancing in which a pope or a priest, a king, a laborer, and a child would come out to follow a person dressed as the personification of death. And they would dance their way to the graveyard to remind people of the fragility of all life and the vanity of earthly glory. As I thought of the dance macabre, I wondered which of our lifestyle changes and our outdoor rituals and our virtual communities will we carry over to remind ourselves, as the medieval believers did, 
that we are connected to each other in life and in death. I thought also of the Bone Church in the Czech Republic, a Roman Catholic chapel decorated with 40,000 skeletal fragments to honor the fatalities from the plague from the 13th to 16th centuries when Europe lost at least half of its population to the plague. The site of that chapel had been a place that people came to die because it was said to house the holy soil imported from Golgotha, the Mount of Skulls, where Jesus himself had also suffered. I compared the temporary witness of those flimsy flags with the centuries-old glory of the calcium phosphate chandelier in that bone ossuary. I wondered, how will we honor those who died? How will we honor the pilgrimage made by those who suffered to reach holy ground? How will we remember that we too were once quarantined and kept outside the walls of the church? suspended from the belief in safety and eternal shelter. How will our sanctuaries be reshaped by this pandemic? We have learned both about the essential need for sacred space, and we have learned how moving beyond the walls of our church has opened up access to more engagement with worship and discipleship than ever before. On Saturday, the Reverend Bruce Ray's Chow, a former moderator of our denomination and a pastor who has been a leader in both multicultural ministry and digital church innovation for decades, spoke to the Presbytery of Greater Atlanta. He encouraged us to not leave behind the lessons and innovations of the quarantine when we reopen our churches to in-person worship and also to gatherings and classes in person again, and on site. Reverend Ray's Chow celebrated how we've reached beyond our walls during the pandemic. Ecumenical cooperation is up as church leaders across denominations share leadership in virtual services. Mission partners join congregations more regularly in worship through the sharing of video storytelling and through attending teleconference meetings that bridge the miles between outreach sites and congregations. Non-geographic members and occasional attendees are attending worship regularly because the obstacles of distance and time are easily overcome by recorded worship. The hurdle of inaccessibility to technology because of age or income has been addressed much more successfully than we could have imagined as those with skills became tech deacons, as Ray's Chow called it, and helped set up men and mentor others to join the grid. Denominations offered grants and no-interest loans to expand the technological reach of even the smallest congregations. And now those who could not drive at night or could not secure a babysitter can attend a small group over the internet. And those who work on Sundays can experience worship any other day. In my own congregation, we are joined every Sunday morning and often on Tuesdays for our Taze worship by two women in Guatemala who run a seminary and social service agency that our congregation supports. Like many churches, we have a role of active members we keep, but we have another list of people we continue to pray for and keep on our mailing list. 
we've seen more of these people in quarantine. This list consists of adult children of members who never transferred their letter to join another church or members who moved away, sometimes as far as California, and refused to switch their membership because this was their home. And now they can join us on Facebook Live parties to watch worship. We interact with them regularly. And they have started to come to other events on Zoom, to classes and to small groups, even to choir. One woman in her 40s hasn't joined another church since she left our youth group. And after nearly a year of online worship, despite living on the West Coast, pledged for the first time in decades. Bruce Ray's Chow reminded us that if we go back simply to the way things were, we might lose some people in the transition back to in-person church. He asked, how can we adapt what we do in person to retain some of the accessibility we've gained in the virtual space? How can we continue to have a portal for visitors across the country or the globe to join us, not just in worship, not just as viewers and watchers, but as ones who make their presence known and share their stories, maybe pass the peace? How will we invite them into the dance of discipleship into which Jesus invites us all? There are so many reminders of what we have lost during this pandemic. Nothing can restore half a million souls. We cannot turn back time to reconvene our celebrations of rites of passage or rewrite the conversations we never got to casually have in our encounters. But we can afford, or can we? Can we afford to lose what we have learned about ourselves? About our need to remain connected, to share sacred space with others? About others' desire to do that? across the distance and across time? Can we afford to lose what we learned about our willingness to go to great lengths to connect? And who will we lose if we become bound by time and space again to be a local congregation that meets only on Sunday mornings? Can we afford to ignore the iniquities and injustice that this pandemic has drastically thrown into the light? Should we return to the shelter of our sanctuary walls without some reminder of what has scorched this earth and some sustained response to the injustice that fueled the fire? The religion of Jesus, Howard Thurman, describes it as a commitment to live a life of integrity. You must abandon fear of each other, he says. Fear only God. You must not indulge in deception and dishonesty. You must not hate, for hatred destroys hated and hater alike. You must love your enemy to know yourself and them as children of God. At first look, the question, who am I and who do you say that I am, feel cut off by quarantine. The dance of identity and integrity feels affected by our isolation. 
It may feel at times that we are hindered in some way by the fullness of the dance. We don't have all the space. We don't have all the freedom of movement, nor the gentle feedback of our dance partners. We don't have the excitement of a crowd in worship. But look again. For we are not truly alone in this. We have been connecting and reaching beyond ourselves in surprising ways. We've been invited by the Spirit to join the dance in whatever way we can. The medieval mystic Mechtild of Magdeburg wrote in her book, The Flowing Light of Divinity. Lord, I cannot dance unless you lead me. I want to leap with abandon, from love to knowledge, from knowledge to enjoyment, from enjoyment to beyond, where I will circle higher and higher still. Friends, whether we have intended to or not, Jesus has invited us into the dance of identity and integrity, into the flow of love to knowledge to enjoyment and beyond ourselves. We have taken the leap, whether we intended to fully or not. So when we find solid ground again, who will we be? And for all those who have joined us in this quarantine, beyond space and time and its restrictions, who will they say that we are? In the, name or in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself. Amen.